This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Fought in the bloody Civil War. Yes, I even killed my brothers and so many others, but I ain't a marching anymore. For I marched to the battles of the German trench in a war that was bound to end all wars. Oh, I must have killed a million men and now they want me back again, but I ain't a marching anymore. It's always the old lead us to the wars, always the young to fall. Now look at all we've won with the saber and the gun. Tell me, is it worth it all? Welcome to episode 54 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, technology director of World Beyond War, and we've invited two special guests today who we'll meet in a moment. First is Maria Santelli, Executive Director of the Center on Conscience and War, a nonprofit organization that advocates for the rights of conscience, opposes military conscription, and serves all conscientious objectors to war. The other is a returning guest to this podcast, Kathy Kelly, President of World Beyond War's Board of Directors, who will be telling us about the really important work of the Merchants of Death Tribunal a new initiative to hold weapons makers and war profiteers accountable for the damage they cause. I think it's significant that we're talking to two people who represent anti-war organizations today, because there's a lot of horror taking place around the world right now, as we speak in November, 2023. The previous two monthly episodes of this podcast have felt like two personal howls of agony and frustration to me. The last episode was about my own friendship with a woman who is now believed to be a hostage from a kibbutz near Gaza, Judy Weinstein Haggai, who remains missing with her husband. And as we record this, the only update I have is that Israel and Hamas have finally begun exchanging prisoners along with a temporary ceasefire. And some hostages and prisoners have been released by both sides in this conflict, though my friend Judy's status is still unknown. Before that podcast interview was another deeply personal one with World Beyond War's military base researcher, Mohammed Abu Nahal, currently based in Mysore, India, who talked about his life growing up in Gaza City. And I can also provide the update that Mohammed's family in Gaza is suffering greatly, along with every other human being in Gaza. And we are praying for an end to the unthinkable horrors that global proxy war and war profiteering are currently inflicting on all our friends in this long-suffering part of the world. That's the only update I've got. And today we're talking to two hardworking people who can speak not only for themselves, but also for the determined anti-war movements they represent. So let's get started by meeting our guests. Maria Santelli is not only the executive director of the Center on Conscience and War, she's also a member of World Beyond War's board of directors. It's great to have you here, Maria. Thank you so much, Mark. It's good to be here. Just to get us started, can you tell a little about your organization? And obviously we'll talk more in depth, but what is the Center on Conscience and War? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So the Center on Conscience and War started in 1940. We were founded 
Um, by the traditional peace churches, what you would call the traditional peace churches, Quakers, Mennonites, Church of the Brethren. And also at that time, there was a Methodist Office of World Peace. And these folks had lived through the horrors of World War I, either personally or their children, their brothers, their spouses had experienced the horrors of World War I, including the despicable brutalization of conscientious objectors during the World War I one draft. There were no legal enforceable protections. Conscientious objectors in World War I in many countries, including the United States, were brutalized, sometimes to death, um, at the hands of the U.S. military. And so as these folks from these churches were watching what was going on in Europe, and it was quite clear that the United States was going to enter World War II, they ensured that there would be legally enforceable protections on the books for conscientious objectors. So they made some very meaningful changes, including um, civilian court for people who resisted conscription instead of military tribunals, which were the case in World War I. They instituted alternative civilian service. So there were many men who were drafted, performed involuntary service, but did so without carrying a weapon or harming another human being and actually did great things for the country and the world in the course of their service. And um, so that was in, in the draft days, of course. So mm -hmm. since the draft has ended, actually beginning in the 1960s, coinciding with the draft time, the Department of Defense realized that people are going to have a change of heart uh, once they experience mil the military environment, military training, or in some cases, actual combat, and they're going to become conscientious objectors after they were recruited or after they were drafted into the military. So since the 1960s, and the policy is still current today, folks who are already in the U.S. military can apply for discharge as conscientious objectors. So that's uh, largely the, the bulk of of the folks that we assist today. Wow. There's so much that I want to ask more about there and so relevant to, to everything we do at World Beyond War. Let's hold my questions for a moment because I want to say hello to Kathy. Kathy, again, is our board president and um, really a, a deeply inspiring example for all of us activists because you've been doing this for a while, Kathy, and are just such a great speaker. Um, and often have so many original thoughts to share. So hello, Kathy. How are you today? Well, hello, Mark and Maria. It's good to be with both of you and to have um, just heard Maria talk about that fascinating history. Um, you know, it, it certainly is relevant to the, the, the previous conversations you had, Mark. So thank you for introducing us through reflection on your last two conversations. Mm -hmm. All of us really, I think, are just working on, on different facets of the same disastrous problem. And I think we all, we all are so, so closely attuned to what each other is doing that often we forget which organizations we're representing. Mm -hmm. we're, we're just representing peace, <laughs> the hope of peace. Mm -hmm. um, Kathy, before, you know, we could talk about World Beyond War, and I hope if people become interested from hearing this, they'll listen to the interview we did with you where you got to talk about your own beginnings. But I would like to um, spend a little time up front with you explaining what this, this initiative called the Merchants of Death Tribunal is. Well, you know, there is this fundamental question, how can we learn to live together without killing one another? And then, of course, that leads to why, why do we keep persisting in, 
dismissing other means to solve problems and grabbing for the guns and the huge guns that hold the whole world hostage right now with nuclear weaponry. And, and so, you know, one obvious reality is that there are some people who profit enormously from selling weapons. And those companies are scattered in many, many subsidiary ways all across the United States. And they have some main offices and headquarters, which the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal intends to hold accountable by holding a tribunal, a people's tribunal, an opportunity for people to take a long, hard look at just how much profiteering happens in war after war after war. And we're only focusing on the ones since 9-11, and we're only focusing on four of the major companies. But we want grassroots people to take seriously every opportunity we can come up with to hold these companies accountable and say, you could change. And we desperately need a change in our foreign policy, our war making, and our war profiteering here in the United States. Oh, so true. I am speaking from New York City, and I grew up on Long Island in the state of New York, which is actually a center of war profiteering, I, I hate to say, and is also one of the most politically screwed up parts of the country, probably mm -hmm. because um, not only do these corporations engage in war profiteering, but they also I mean, tell me if Kathy, if I've got this right, but they also purchase government representation um, in the form of donations to politicians, which influences the decisions our governments make. Um, well, that's certainly true. And there's also a revolving door between the people who rise to the top of the corporations and then they kind of go through the doorway, the portal into government, and then sometimes exit back out again into the corporation. Yes, uh, and we, yes, we've talked about, and we've talked about the revolving door. Um, so both of these organizations and World Beyond War, which is a third organization that all three of us are involved in, what do we all have in common? I mean, for me, I think what I hear is that uh, none of us believes any longer that war is a legitimate foreign policy tool. We have to dispose of that. I think yes. we're all working toward disposing of that, recognizing that it's barbaric. Uh, there's no, uh, there's no winner, you know, um, we actually got um, <laughs> we got some really difficult pushback last year. Um, we put out an annual print newsletter, and last year, around this time of year, December 2022, we wrote an editorial uh, criticizing the violent response by Ukraine to the invasion. And many, many, many people said thank you. Thank you for giving me the words to talk to my community, my family, my congregation, you know, because there was so much pressure to support a violent response by Ukraine. 
But then a couple, you know, so people, a few people were thankful. Several people were thankful that we had the courage to speak from that lens of conscience is what we called it. You know, mm -hmm. as conscientious objectors, can we ever say that violence is justified, that a, a, a violent militarized response is justified? And our answer, searching our hearts, searching our conscience, said no. And so, as I say, many people thanked us, but a few people were very, very angry with us and felt like, how could you not support Ukraine's efforts at liberation? And we pointed out that human rights were being violated in Ukraine um, brutally, particularly conscientious objectors, religious conscientious objectors. Uh, men were not allowed to leave the country. I don't believe they still are, men between the ages of 18 and 60. So if you are a person of faith with a religious objection to fighting in war, if you are simply a moral or ethical objector to fighting in, in war, in any war, in any way, shape, or form, you were you, your rights were violated in Ukraine, and, and there's many other ways that that even Ukraine and the and its militarized response resulted in uh, in human rights violations and continued brutalization. So there's so many things, that, more things that we could say about that, but that's what I think we we are all moving toward is delegitimizing the use of war as a foreign policy tool as a way to resolve conflict because it what, doesn't. What, what a great point. And I, I would emphasize there is the conscientious objection, as you're saying. I would also emphasize that there's a practical objection, which is that war does not succeed in defeating so-called enemies, but rather, in my perception, tends to embolden enemies and continue wars. Um, I wonder, Maria, do you, you know, Along with the along with the conscientious side, do you, does your organization also fight war on, on behalf of simply of the fact that it's not effective? It's Absolutely, and and you know when I learned of uh, you know October seventh, twenty twenty three, what mm -hmm. happened? Um, I was I was physically sickened. I was physically sickened. Why? Because I knew without a shadow of a doubt, what was coming next. And yes. that was going to be what we're experiencing now. This, this genocide, this ruthless, merciless, you know, brutal assault on the people of Gaza. How could Hamas not know that that was what was coming? And then I know both of you and others listening probably heard people who have long time supported Palestine and, and, and a free Palestinian state and free Palestinian people, I know that there was some sentiment of they got out. Hamas broke out. You know, there was even, I heard some pride. I'm proud of them. I'm proud of what Hamas did. And I could not be that way. I could never be that way uh, in response to a violent attack, even if you could critically analyze it and see it as a move of liberation or an attempt at liberation. I can't celebrate that violence because it won't lead to a peaceful solution or resolution. And look what has occurred. I mean, as I, I can't express, like, I'm, and I'm sure many people felt it, just the pit in my stomach, you know, when when I learned of, of, the, of the attack by Hamas because I knew what was going to happen next. So no, there's no way that I could ever believe. And I tried to search, like, so when 
Russia invaded Ukraine, I tried to search again in my own heart, in my own conscience, what would I do if this was my country? And a violent response to me is never going to achieve the goal that I want to achieve, which is a just and lasting peace. Exactly right. Yeah, I mean, what what we see is that it will bring more of the same. And that is what exactly what we have seen in Gaza and Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I feel acutely conscious of the security that I'm surrounded by right now. I am not in the slightest bit worried about what kind of water I'm going to drink, about where I'm going to get a next meal, about whether or not the building will collapse on top of me, about whether or not my loved ones are going to be tortured. I am simply swaddled in security and comfort. In past times in my life, I went to places like the Janine camp in the West Bank when it was under attack. And I twice went to Gaza, once during one of these terrible assaults and onslaughts. It was called Operation Cast Lead, and once uh, following one that was called Operation Pillar of Defense. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had some awareness of what Maria is describing, you know, the, the, the terrible, terrible consequences of aerial bombardment and of a, a, a massive military force attacking people who relatively have a, um, very, very small defense possibilities. Right. But I always met with the blue passport, and I knew that if I survived, I would come back home, which I've always done. So I have to say that I'm uh, most acutely conscious of what right I have to speak in this context. And yet at the same time, along with Maria and you and all of the people in World Beyond War, I refuse to cherry pick and say, well, some wars are okay. I'm going to go on on board with saying that I oppose the development, sale, storage, use of any weapons anywhere. And when I say I oppose the use of any weapons anywhere, I oppose killing as a means to try to solve any disputes, any problems anywhere on the world. I think we face ecological collapse. We're facing potential nuclear annihilation. And I don't see any way out of the responsibility to say we will find ways to make usage of words and diplomacy and negotiation and resilience and justice seeking more effective than war. You're definitely speaking for all of us and everybody at, at World Beyond War. If we didn't, if we did not um, categorically believe that war was wrong, I don't think I don't think our organizations could do what they do. I also want to say that the evidence is absolutely clear <laughs> that that aerial bombardment does not help anything; that it only creates more of the same. When is the world going to wise up to what we see? I think we we all have this surreal feeling that what we see is so obvious and so well known, and yet 
and yet we face this resistance. I mean, Maria, you were speaking of the resistance that you had faced, your organization mm -hmm. had faced. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, so I, being from a Jewish family, um, I hear all sides of attitudes about Israel and Palestine. And um, I can definitely say that most people who support war, who theoretically support war because they're far away from war, as you say, Kathy, swaddled in safety, swaddled in security. The reason they support war is because they have been made to feel terrified of strangers, foreigners, and other countries and other cultures, and they are literally terrified. And for me, being a member of my family trying to speak against war, it's trying to speak against this abstract fear, not a real fear. The people in Gaza have a real fear um, of the bombs that are landing in their communities on their blocks every day. But an abstract fear can also be terrifying. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, as, as you both have, have have brought out like it's so easy to say things from a distance um, but when you're in it like the folks that we work with who are in the military when they face the real and actual threat not just to their lives because that for for the country interest objectors we work with that's secondary or not even a concern at all the concern is the threat that they may have to take another human life and that's mm -hmm. what terrifies them and we don't realize this enough as as civilians as people in the peace movement that humanity is not wired for war we have mm -hmm. to be taught we have to be taught to dehumanize one another we have to be taught and trained to be able to kill one another and the military knows this so well. And one of my conscientious objectors that I'm working with now was a pilot in the Air Force. He is no longer a pilot because once you declare your intent to apply for discharge as a conscientious objector, you're taken off flight status. So he's been stripped of his ability to fly, which is just fine with him. This flying means flying heavy planes out and light planes in because they've lost the weight of the bombs. Yeah. <clears throat> and so he, but he was just called into what's called a commander's call. That means that everybody in the unit is called together, and then they're briefed on something very important. This was briefed on a potential. This particular commander's call was a briefing on a potential deployment. And it, in addition to saying, "Hey, get ready to you know to leave town for a while," the commander also said, "Get ready to kill and what that's going to be like." And then, in a way that could be interpreted as compassionate, but also bizarrely cold and so beyond the scope of my imagination, the commander said, get ready to take to take another human life. Get ready to kill, is what he said, because we don't want anybody hanging themselves. Wow. That's so, so revealing. <laughs> right? So, I mean, the idea that you can support war from a distance, but then not understand and really internalize not only what you're doing to the victims and and the survivors of that 
brutality, but also to the people that in your name are carrying out that brutality. If war was natural, if war was good for us, we would thrive. Instead, we have traumatized veterans and veterans dying by suicide and active duty members dying by suicide every single day. Why is that happening? Wow. Wow. What a a statement. Um, I had never thought of it that way, Maria. I, I need to ask, how did you how did you personally find yourself playing this role or taking this position? <laughs> well, I thought I was going to stop the invasion of Iraq back in 2003. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're young and idealistic. And, you know, I'd never really failed at anything so massively before. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, and there was such a global movement against that war. I thought we're going to stop this war, you know, and we didn't. And I was crushed. Of course, so many of us around the world were devastated because we knew what shock and awe meant for real living beings on all sides of the conflict. And it was horrifying and and devastating. And I thought, well, if I can't stop the war, I'm going to stop people from going to fight the war. So I started to do counter recruiting, what's called counter recruiting, right? Where you go into, we were going into classrooms. I was living in New Mexico at the time, which is a relatively small community, you know, fewer than 2 million people in the whole state. And we're very, we're very connected state, right? All the different you know, parts of the state are very connected. You know, you travel around, you see each other, the peace movement particularly. So I met two really great veterans and they were, they were night and day in their stories but in where they came to in their hearts to be opposed to war in any form was the same. And, and they were both native New Mexicans in, in different ways. One was a woman, one was a man, one was Chicano, one was Navajo, you know, one was a young veteran, the other had been in for 24 years. So they had had great complimentary experiences. And we traveled all over the state of New Mexico and talked to thousands and thousands of students. And, um, you know, hopefully saved a lot of lives. I think we did. Um, And then I thought, okay, well, I'm not getting everybody to stop going in because obviously people are still joining. So let me help people get out, you know, and, and that's when I started to work on the GI rights hotline in New Mexico and started to help people get out. And then, and then shortly after that, I, I focused, um, I still help people on the GI rights hotline. The center on conscience and war is still part of the GI rights hotline, which does all kinds of human and civil rights work with active duty members, because certainly when, the, when an institution exists to perpetrate injustice, which is what the military is, um, mm-hmm. that injustice naturally, inherently spills over into the internal population. So not only do we treat people in the countries where we invade and occupy horribly, but also the, the actual members of our military are, um, you know, uh, have their rights violated um, on a regular basis. So, so we support them hoping that if they get justice, it's going to open up their hearts to extending that justice to others. Um, and so we work on the GI rights hotline, but my heart's work, really, my, my, uh, where I'm called is, is helping people of conscience get out. So that's how I got here. That is so great. And, and your story there began 20 years ago with the Iraq disaster. But how did you 20 years ago be, become so wise? What, what, made you, what made you smart in 2003? 
<laughs> you know, um, I don't know. I guess just being raised by good, you know, um, Italian immigrant socialist stock. <laughs> um, you know, my parents were, uh, you know, against the Vietnam War. I grew up knowing that. Um, my parents had friends whose kids were in the military at the time of the first Gulf War. And I remember that, you know, hearing them talk about that and knowing how tragic that was, you know, um, so I just kind of had that in the home, you know, I mean, we were anti-war in the home. Um, so that was really, I mean, my parents were not activists. They were busy, you know, raising kids and earning a middle-class living, you know, um, but, uh, but they were, they taught me, you know, and my mother was always really deliberate about making sure I knew what was going on in the world and that I understood and I had the ability to analyze it. Um, so, yeah, so that was quite clear. You know, we always talked about those things. Like we always talked about the state of the world and, and the tragedies and the sadness and how we could do better. You know, my mom was a great person of faith and um, in a way that it made her a better person and uh, made her very loving and very warm and very open. And, and I think that's how I got here. <laughs> that is so great. And, and I'm sure they are very proud of you and impressed mm -hmm. with what you do. Thanks. So that's... <laughs> And I think one other thing, if I may, not having divisions, not thinking like, I'm going to protect what's mine or who's mine, but rather understanding that everyone belongs to me and I belong, you know, and I'm a citizen of the world. Like, that's, totally. you know, that's all I think is also a very important thing because I think we get sort of tunnel vision as like my nuclear family or, or my country rather than, you know, we're all the same. I extend that to all species, too. So. I love it. Uh, citizen of the world is one of my favorite phrases. That's the only kind of citizen I am. I don't I do not recognize this thing called the United States of America as valid in any way. Um, I, I just want to say something about working with Maria. There was a time not so long ago when our friend in Ukraine, Yuri Shelyazhenko, was possibly going to face a, 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 an even greater injustice in the accusations that were being leveled against him. And we felt like it was crucial to have a public presence in Washington, D.C. and do it almost overnight. And I thought, well, how is that going to happen? And Maria got right on it. I mean, it was remarkable. Oh, we need a press release. Here's one. Oh, we need a contact list. Here's, here are the people we can call. Oh, we've got a group of people committed to assemble. We, here are the signs. I mean, it was just remarkable to me that that network could move so quickly. And the reason the engine really was Maria. Wow. So you're too when, kind. <laughs> but when we, and, and Yuri is still facing problems, no doubt. But um, when we're looking right now at what's happening around the world, and we go back to young Maria in New Mexico just trying so, so hard to prevent the war against Iraq that was waged in 2003, the shock and awe warfare. Well, the world came closer than ever before to stopping a war before it started. But then you're right, Maria, it was like a massive failure. Everything went blank. It went dark. The, the curtains came down. I was over in Baghdad and I thought, well, where are the, where is everybody? But this time with the international and the U.S. response to the war against people living in Gaza, the slaughter of children that's now it costs the lives of hundreds of 
well, thousands, let me say many thousands of children, innocent children. It, it, it looks like child sacrifice. When we look at the towns in Gaza that are leveled, flattened, when we look at the people in Israel whose arms ache for loved ones that still aren't returned because of the insistence, we will go forward with this war, and the international outcry that says no, and then goes back and says no again even more massively the next weekend with a, a you know, I mean, in New York City, the, the Grand Central occupation was very, very inspiring with Jewish Voice for Peace at the lead, but this past weekend, the Manhattan Bridge was shut down. You know, anywhere you cast your eye on the globe, there are people saying we're not going to go along with this. So are we possibly at a tipping point? Hmm. We'd be reaching a point when people are ready to say, no, the people that are the winners are the ones who keep on making gargantuan profits because they sell these weapons. But we no longer want to say that a joint defense ammunition kit manufactured by Boeing is a legitimate tool for solving a problem. We no longer want to say that these grotesque drones that uh, now they've got ones that can fire hellfire missiles that will, you know, like a lawnmower, devour a body and slice it into pieces. Are we to say that's how we as human beings want to solve problems? So the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal wants to make it clear in country after country where wars have been waged, what the price is, what the consequences are. And so we've looked already at Gaza. Our first segment you know, wasn't at our calendar initially, but once October 7th had occurred, we said we've got to focus on Gaza first. And then we looked at Syria and Somalia, and, and I'm working very, very hard on the shock and awe episode, we call them. And, and each of these episodes can be viewed in a person's own free time or a group's own free time. But we are moving toward the jurors ultimately giving a deliberation and a set of conclusions and recommendations of what we can do. And then we're right back to Maria and that um, determined willingness to say, yes, we will take action. And I also want to mention as part of conscientious objection to war, who pays for all of this weaponry? Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't make a profit from it, but we, the people in the United States, uh, are conscripted in a sense into turning over massive amounts of money to the Pentagon and to these military corporations to deal death elsewhere. And it, it comes home to roost, certainly. Yes. So I'm, I'm myself aware of how difficult it is for people to drop out of that payment. I, I managed from 1980 un, until um, I started to receive Social Security at age 65. But I did manage throughout those years not to pay any taxes. I, I lowered my salary beneath the taxable income. And, and that was a far preferable way to live. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have been able to do that. But we do have to pose the question, you know, what pays for this master-slave relationship that persists in our country, in our constructs? And in so many ways, the United States continues to say 
to other countries all around the world, and Israel says it to every Palestinian. If you do not subordinate yourselves to serve our perceived national interests, we will eliminate you. And if you don't believe it, look at what we've already done. Now, this is threatening. It's sinister. It's bullying. It's cruel. It's so wrongheaded. And how do we bring it before the light of day? And that's what the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal is trying to do. Well, you know, I, I have no doubt why I wanted both of you on this call, because you both speak so clearly, and, and I'm sure our listeners feel the same way. Um, one thing I want to say, Kathy, is not only do we pay literally for this, these murders, but the other cost has been the, the rotting of our own government. I mean, in my opinion, our government has been bought and sold by war profiteers, and we see the results of that, whether it's Trump or Biden or Obama, they're all serving the war profiteers. That's the one common denominator. And we pay with our, we, we've lost our credible government. You know, I said before that I don't consider the United States to be a, a reputable enough organization that I am willing to be a part of it. But if it were not for the the ongoing human disaster of war, I think we could have a good government. Well, so, I also think that when we ask ourselves, uh, what terrors do we really face? What would we want a government to defend us from? I mean, look at what happened in the pandemic. Our government was not up to par in being able to save lives during the pandemic. And there could very well be more pandemics yet to come. And what would make sense would be to be in a position to say to China and to scientists anywhere in the world, we want to collaborate with you. We want to cooperate with you. We want to figure out how we can all collectively secure ourselves against the ravages of new pandemics and then take that exact same attitude and let that infuse our approach toward ecological collapse. Absolutely. We collaborate. Uh, we, have, we have no um, uh, money that we can afford to spend on wars when what we so desperately need is a way to deal with ecological collapse. We've got to, we desperately need to change our transportation systems, to change our energy systems, to change the ways that we educate ourselves about moving into the world that we really are moving into, which is one which is on the verge of systems accelerating toward collapse. So we, we need that kind of reality to inform what we're doing. And also, you know, right now in New York City, people are gathering to support the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And the other major, major factor that could undo civilization and human life on the planet and the life of other species is the nuclear weapon proliferation. And of course, 53 miles from Gaza, there's a tunnel. It's the tunnel under the Negev Desert that houses the Shimon Peres Nuclear Research Center, mm. where Israel has at least 80, possibly as many as 400 thermonuclear weapons, and the United States enabled that process. And we don't invade those tunnels. <laughs> we let oh, those. We, oh, nor do we inspect them, nor does the International Atomic Energy Association. 
because Israel has been allowed to just kind of coyly say, well, we won't be the first to introduce nuclear weapons into the region. But that's not true. It's a lie. They have introduced the nuclear weapons. And now Saudi Arabia wants the nuclear weapons. And, um, it, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's a prescription for ongoing disasters. So we need leadership, and I don't think it will come from the United States government that will renounce the development and storage and use of nuclear weaponry and listen to the people that are gathering at the United Nations and the non-nuclear weapon bearing states, including now Indonesia, for instance, who have said, yeah, we, we want this treaty to go forward. Damn, damn right. And I would add that we are forced to entrust our our future in the hands of incompetence like the the United States leadership and Russia's leadership and Israel's leadership. We're trusting that Biden and Netanyahu and Putin and Zelensky will manage to avoid nuclear war. That's not a bet I want to take. It's not a bet that that's not a good bet, um, considering how incompetent lead, governmental leadership has been with the economy and with the climate. How can we even how can we even spend a day trusting that they will not stumble into nuclear war? You know, I don't I don't think it'll be intentional. I think it'll be an accident. Um, Maria, it's so interesting to know more about what the people that you're in touch with who are becoming conscientious objectors, what are they saying about what they believe is really the greatest threat to security? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, it varies. You know, conscientious objectors are, are, are so, you know, the beautiful thing that I love about it so much is that it's so, it's the individual. It's what what my individual conscience will allow. And so many different things touch every individual person, you know? Um, so yeah, it's war profiteering, it's environmental destruction, it's obviously loss of life, loss of civilian life, um, you know, innocent beings, uh, all kinds of things move people. Um, and what they're really concerned about, um, yeah, is ongoing, ongoing war. Um, I mean, I think it, to me, it keeps coming back to um, this quote that I heard from, I think it, you pronounce his name, Ernst Friedrich. Um, and, and he said in 1924, um, stronger than all violence, than the saber and the rifle is our spirit, is our will. Repeat these three words. I will not give content to these words and all wars in future will be impossible. So, um, and then I heard something, and then modern day, like somewhere on Instagram or something, I saw someone post, I'm only one person said 7 billion people, you know? <laughs> so the idea of, I think what moves the folks that I work with is, is the idea that, you know, I have to, I have to do this for myself. I, you know, this is the only way that I'm being led. And, uh, my hope is that I'll have an impact, you know, on others and, um, move others to do the same. And I, and I think it does. And I think things like the tribunal that you're talking about, Kathy, or other, you know, um, policy movements or movements on the street, they're 
you know, even if we're not being successful, like we talked about with the war in Iraq in 2003, even if we're not successful, we're moving people. People are seeing it. And some of those people seeing it are people in the military, in the U.S. military or in other militaries around the world. Um, we have seen, you know, coming to our borders, tens of thousands of people from Russia trying to escape being forced to fight in that war. You know, how come it's so easy to manipulate folks into um, believing that war is necessary. I, I don't know why that is, why it's so easy, but it's not so easy to convince people that a pandemic is, is gonna kill a bunch of people if we don't you know, respond to that, or that environmental collapse, you know, ecological collapse is gonna cause chaos for millions and billions of people if we don't address those things. I'm not sure why it's so easy to manipulate humanity in terms of that kind of, um, you know, gravitation toward supporting violence. I don't, I'm not, I don't understand that. I don't know if you guys have any um, ways to explain that, <laughs> why we're, you know, why, why people are so easily manipulated in that way. But many, many aren't. Many, yeah. many aren't. And those, a lot of those people in Russia that are fighting are 18-year-old conscripts who just mm. don't know any other way, you know, and are those kids our enemies, you know? You know, Mark, I think it's important to think about the map you work so hard on, the mm. mapping of bases, military bases all over the world, the majority yeah. of which are built and uh, maintained by the United States and all of the different jobs and support industries that feed into those bases. and. You know, I, in a way, so many people think, well, you know, jobs, jobs, jobs. We need job security. And people think that that has to be associated with defense industries. Well, I think that's pernicious, but we, we certainly have a great shortfall, as Christian Sorensen points out to us. And he'll do that in a, an upcoming episode of the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal, a shortfall in the development of alternatives, alternative ways of solving problems, which these great, huge, massive military organizations actually could do enormous um, tasks to help us accomplish. I mean, every single base has the potential to be a place to welcome refugees. Mm -hmm. Every base has the potential to help us to manufacture the um, goods needed to accomplish solar energy and wind energy and retrofitting the housing stock and building up wise forms of transportation. You know, we've got this network, but it's all consumed and controlled by a killing machine. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And if your product is a weapon, your market is war. So <laughs> like... It's so easy to, to see the logic of it. I mean, I hope everyone saw, you know, the the snapshots of the profits, the, the stock prices rising of Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, um, Lockheed Martin, you know, uh, during the Ukraine, you know, the, the early days of the invasion of Ukraine. Why? Well, if we give weapons to Ukraine, we have to make more for other people, for us and for us to sell and give to, uh, you know, to fuel other conflicts around the world. So the stat I saw most recently was that since October 7th, Wall Street manufacturers of weapons are enjoying a 7% profit. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you should hear the statements they make to each other, which can be recorded in, in, you know, board meetings. And actually, Kathy, some of this was in the Merchants of Death Tribunal, um, the, the opening session where I think it was quoted um, how, how happy these corporations are to, to have new markets suddenly. I mean, their markets burst open in 2022 and 2023 with the Ukraine-Russia war and the new Israel-Hamas war. Um, you know, Arundhati Roy put it so well. She said, we used to make weapons to fight wars, and now we make wars to sell weapons. Oh, wow. I never heard that. That's great. And it's so true. Um, I want to mention... We just have so little understanding of what the impact of these weapons is. You know, the, the white phosphorus that's being dropped from aerial um, gunships, when, when that white phosphorus settles on somebody's skin, it goes subcutaneous. And it, it, if a surgeon is to try to remove the white phosphorus that's underneath someone's skin, as soon as it's exposed to oxygen, it starts burning again. And the surgeons, they have to run away from the operating table to get their breath. But can you imagine? That's like My the napalm that so many remember that was dropped on children in Vietnam. It's hideous. It's ghastly. It's cruel. And yet we just see these almost like art images of you know the, the burst of the white phosphorus in the air. But we don't feel it on the screen. Wow. Well, I I just want to mention to answer Maria's question about why I have to use the word fear. Um, I mentioned it before. Along with weapons profiteers, a lot of the blame goes on our corrupt media, mass media organizations that also sell war. I, I have the unfortunate experience often of turning on my cable TV and seeing CNN or MSNBC or Fox News. And when it comes to Israel Hamas, there's no difference. They're all saying the same thing. War, war, war. What they're selling is fear. I also want to say specifically about Israel and Hamas, the method that they use is to, in the United States, to convince Anybody who has any ideas that peace negotiation can work, that compromise can work, to convince them that Hamas represents some type of otherworldly evil comparable to past figures of evil, and therefore that compromise or negotiation is pointless and impossible. I would say that um, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, New York Times, and Washington Post constantly deliver that message that negotiation is futile, peacemaking is futile, the only answer is war. So in my opinion, our media is just as complicit as the direct profiteers. I'm curious, Kathy, how you respond to that. Well, I think the media is so very short-sighted. I mean, right now it's clear that it, rather than being able to eliminate Hamas, actually Hamas is becoming more popular oh, in the sure. West Bank because between settler violence ravaging communities, and that's gone upwards since October 7th, and the numbers of people arrested in the West Bank, Palestinians that the Israelis have arrested since October 7th, which is actually more than any of the numbers that are, are being released, 
um, the, the, the people are going to say, we have to turn to somebody who will really defend us. And so Hamas is becoming more popular in the West Bank. That's probably not true in Gaza, but then who can do censuses in Gaza right now? But, you know, I, I, Israel is going to have to recognize in the days after this hideous warfare, when it finally subsides, that they, they have to deal with Hamas as a legitimate entity, one which has committed war crimes and violations of human rights, no doubt, but far less so than what Israel has done. Right. Both sides will have to will have to negotiate with the side that has committed horrible crimes against against humanity, because that's what war does. And stop using crime as an excuse to wage massive war. Yes. Crimes should be adjudicated before a court. And you know, even that is a faulty means. Ultimately, we need people to recognize that we've all got the same blood coursing through our bodies and to reach across the artificial borders that are created often by people who are thieves and, and criminals and, and say the way forward has to do with setting aside our weapons and finding ways to live in peace. Exactly. So. That's why we love to hear you speak, Kathy, because you put this so well. Um, I want to return to what you had mentioned about our friend Yuri, Yuri Shelyazenko, our uh, a beautiful soul in Ukraine, in Kiev, who we've all gotten to know, and he is a conscientious objector, and he's a conscientious objector who's in a lot of jeopardy. Because, because he's visible, because he speaks out, mm -hmm. um, and he's in Kiev, and he has spent time under house arrest because there is no free speech in times of war. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Maria, you have talked a lot about your work with US, um, US conscientious objectors, but can you tell us a a any more about your experience with working with Yuri? I mean, the courage is just unimaginable, uh, you know, that he is displaying and his fearlessness and his generosity toward other people. Mm -hmm. But these are all the characteristics of, you know, people who have have come to these beliefs, I think, you know, and, and who have been called to defend them. I think, as Kathy said earlier, we are so privileged that we can, you know, fr from this position that we can kind of say certain things and, and hold certain positions um, on either side, whether we're advocating for war or advocating against war, our values in this country are rarely tested to this point. You know, we don't face conscription. We don't have to decide, you know, where are my values leading me? How far will I go to remain true to those values? We're not tested in that way, but people around the world are still tested. People in Russia are tested, you know, people in, in Gaza and Israel are being tested and Yuri was tested. And he has said time and time again, it doesn't matter what, you know, my freedom is not the issue. How are you guys doing? You know, he's asking about us and concerned about us in other places yes. around the world. Meanwhile, he does sit in house arrest. He does have, he loses power to communicate uh, with people from the outside. So that that's what, you know, scares me. And I worry about him. What could happen to him? You know, it's my hope that he is so vocal and so known by the international community that that will protect him. 
And his struggles have helped other people mm-hmm. in Ukraine, other people of conscience in Ukraine find their freedom. He has relentlessly fought to expose the violations of human rights and rights of conscience there. And he's been successful at, at assisting uh, folks getting out of jail, other folks getting out of actual prison who've been imprisoned for their beliefs. So yeah, he's incredible. And I think that the lesson for us to learn is where will we be when our values are tested? What will we do? And, and therefore, how do we stand up for others who's, who are living their values now under such a threat and, and, and experience of oppression? And Maria, you know, when I listen to you speak, I, I, I think of the, the words of a, a very wise woman, Barbara Deming, who was a Quaker and very active in the civil rights and anti-nuclear weapon movements. And, and she, her line was, we are all part of one another. And, and, you know, wanting to acknowledge that security and privilege that those of us on this call right now have, and many, many of the listeners, I also want to say how um, unusual it is to be as connected as we are with Muhammad Abu Nahal in India, who, whose family in Gaza is suffering and who has researched uh, to the max the consequences of militarism around the world by working with Mark and others on the, the global mapping of militarism. And when you think about Muhammad Abu Nahal and Yuri Shelyajenko and our capacity to every day wake up thinking, well, how are they doing? What are they doing? What's mm-hmm. happening to these in- vital people in our lives, perhaps that sense of relationship is more of a rudder than we even realize in bringing us into a recognition of our our responsibility and our potential. I also want to say that when any of us stand up and speak out for peace and against war, we are standing as a pillar for others who probably are nurturing the same thoughts inside their head, but but don't know that it's possible. And this is something I experienced. You know, I mentioned that I, I have a lot of arguments and debates with friends and family who have a very diverse points of view. But, you know, one thing that I find that I do is I hear their I hear their arguments, many of which are insipid and ignorant, <laughs> but I hear them respectfully. I respond respectfully. I then hear more insipid ignorance, you know, maybe mixed with some attempts at, at, you know, I'm talking about people who don't really follow the news very closely and don't really understand what's going on, but, but have strong feelings. And when I continue to hold the pro-peace anti-war position, even against all of, all of the noise that's, that's sent my way, I find that around me, people start to come around to my position because I, because, just because I don't fall down, because I can continue to stand up. And that's what you do, Maria, and that's what you do, Kathy, um, in so many great ways. I mean, you know, the careers, your careers are, are being, it, your career is to be a pillar. And that is such a great choice to make. Um, I wonder if, you know, is that something that you feel as well, both of you, that, that that by your example, you're, you're inspiring others. I'm every day. I'm so humbled and 
honored to work with the people that I work with because they're the ones doing the heavy lifting. I mean, picture what these folks go through. And many of them are young, not all, but many of them. So when you become a conscientious objector you it, from the U.S. military, you're in there for many months. So you declare your intent. You say, I'm opposed to everything this organization stands for but you can't leave. And you, you are forced to remain in that environment because you have a, a legally binding contract that you can't get out of. And some people might leave, right? Some people we say informally discharge themselves, you know, they go AWOL <clears throat> or unauthorized absence in the Marines and the Navy. And, but they still have to return and, and deal with that environment. But if they endure and they stay through the lengthy process of being discharged as conscientious objectors, they are in this environment. They have conversations every day with people yes. who disagree with them. They are taken out of any kind of direct support role for war, but any position in the military is an indirect support role for war. So they're still there. And for some, it's very trying. But they, they do it because that's how strong the pull of their conscience is. And so I just say, you know, you guys are doing the heavy lifting. I'm just here to, to stand beside you, you know, to spot you, to give you a spot, you know. Um, so it's beautiful. And um, they're some of the most amazing, beautiful people that you, you ever have the privilege to encounter. I believe that most people in our all-recruited military are joining for all of the right reasons. They think think they're doing something for humanity, for their country. They think they're doing something bigger than themselves. They want to serve, right? Capital S, we call it yes. the service. We really have to, I think, reframe what service is and, and have, you know, have a different conversation about what service to your community and what your country is. But right now, that's what they see. That's what they're, you know, that's what recruiting is all about, you know, kind of that emotional manipulation. And that's why they join. Nobody's joining to kill other people. If they are there, that's, that's, that's a sociopath. And there's very few of those actually diagnosable in our mm -hmm. culture. Most people are joining to do something, to do something good. And when they realize that's not what they're doing there, you know, they, they, they feel remorse, but then when they, and they feel, you know, shame and they feel grief, but then when they take that active step to reclaim their conscience and, and live true to their values it's so inspiring and i feel so grateful to be around it every day in that spirit let's call out the many great anti-war activists who were formerly um, military service members mm -hmm. from from ann wright who was a who was on the um, merchants of death tribunal um session i just listened to matthew ho as well leah bulger one of the founders of world beyond war uh, I'm sure there are so many more that we could name. Howard Zinn. I did not know that about Howard Zinn. Did, but he, he, was he, was, a, he was a bombardier in World War II. You know, I didn't know that. Okay. Uh, wow. I mean, I, would, I guess we could say that the anti-war movement wouldn't be what it is, you know, without these people. And um, the, it, it's something I've never experienced because I never enlisted but how much they how much they must have to overcome mm -hmm. to be that brave absolutely absolutely but it's so healing you know i mean i i think we are learning more and more about moral injury you know what we what we common you know what we earlier called shell shock you know then we called post traumatic stress disorder ptsd as if it's a disorder to be traumatized 
by war. It's actually a quite human and natural and appropriate response, you know, and now we're recognizing this as moral injury. And the definition of moral injury is actually wounds to the soul caused by a transgression against the conscience. Like that's how psychiatrists and psychologists understand moral injury. It's, it's something that occurs inside of you because you've gone against your most deeply held values. And, um, and I think the, that proactive step of working against war, working to stop war, working to heal all wounds of war is a way to help heal yourself. My God. Yes. Um, I would also say the same is true of our collective soul. You know, the souls of our societies um, are wounded. You know, I this brings me back to my friend Judy, who was um, taken from a kibbutz on October 7th. The fact is the kibbutz that she lived in was founded, I believe in 1955 um, by, people who still believed that there was a humanitarian mission that the founding of Israel could could deliver. In other words, they were, and this sounds absurd today, they were idealistic um, in, in believing that they could help the world by founding kibbutzes in Israel. And many, many decades later, we see how degraded this project has become but but yet my friend who was in this kibbutz that is her legacy of you know once actually believing that that something good could come from you know building farms and they were hoping that these farms would be diverse places not not you know only one type of person um that does show that there is this there is this potential to to find the the original good that we all believed in. I'm not sure if I'm saying believed in or believe in, but I think we still believe in it. Um, I think we're trying to recover our humanity after centuries of war. You know, I um, visited young people in Afghanistan over the past decade, and when they were really quite young. Uh, the Afghan peace volunteers had a chance to have a conversation with Noam Chomsky. Well, they were mighty excited, and so was I, really. And one of them, Gulamai, said, Prof Noam, what do you think about reparations? And Noam Chomsky said, oh, that's a very important question. And he said, any civilized people would pay reparations for the suffering we've caused. Hmm. I think that approaching our own history with a sense of repentance and remorse for the way that we stole land and the way that we eliminated and committed genocide uh, as natives here in this country were crushed by our constant takeover of their land. Our hideous, ghastly enslavement of people that were forced to come to this country repentance and remorse and reparations and we could we could pay reparations if we turn that massive obscene military budget toward the construction of fair and just and equitable and let me even say friendly ways yes to approach people in other lands and within the united states we could do it 
and and the other thing I learned from these young Afghan friends, so many of them who've now fled because that's the most nonviolent thing they could do, and they're living in a community in great precarity in Islamabad while we try to get them to Portugal or to Spain, they constantly say to us, "Blood doesn't wash away blood." Hmm. Heck yeah. Well, um, I want to thank both of you for sharing your wisdom. Really, I'm so impressed by the things you, you both have said. And, you know, to emerge from these sort of deeper issues we talk about, maybe I want to just close by asking each of you what is next for the organizations or movements you represent. Um, because let's let's remain in the practical world, you know. But it, to talk about these things on this level is so important, um, you know, to to address the damages on on the cultural level, on the economic level, on the spiritual level. Um, all these things are so real. So thank you both. But before we go, um, let's start with Kathy. What? is next for the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal and what can people do? And then I'll ask the same to Maria about your organization. Well, thanks so much, Mark. We encourage people to register if they're not already registered, just go to merchantsofdeath.org and there's a button. And once you've registered, you can be in touch with each of the previous episodes that have focused so far on Gaza, Syria, Somalia, and we'll have a special um, focus on Christian Sorensen's research coming up. And then we'll eventually be looking at Afghanistan and Iraq and Yemen and uh, the revolving door in a sense of uh, influence and lobbying and influence peddling that these corporations engage in. On December 3rd, uh, there will be a meetup online and uh, we'll invite people to come together. So far, I believe that 250 have registered for this and we'll break into smaller groups and people can raise their questions, their feedback, and also think about concrete steps that can be taken. And we've got a great recommendation of actions that people can take, some including civil disobedience uh, listed on that website, merchantsofdeath.org. And then we've got jurors from all over the world who are listening to the evidence and they will eventually be writing a lengthy report which will disseminate. So that's where the um, Merchants of Death campaign is taking us. We are so glad to work with World Beyond War, which by the way, I you know just last weekend, I had a chance to listen in to World Beyond War Africa chapters that are forming. And yeah. that's very exciting. And I'm happy to collaborate with World Beyond War Australia chapters that are also working to, to assist with the refugees fleeing from wars. Isn't that great? There's also a new chapter in Mexico, a World Beyond World chapter in Mexico. Um, it's, it's so great the way we are growing. Um, I also want to mention, Kathy, that um, in the opening session, which was a great video that anybody can find on YouTube, um, I also was glad to hear Cornell West speak on behalf of the tribunal. So we've got some, you know, some big names there and you as well, Kathy, are a big name there. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much for that. Maria, what's going on with your organization that people can possibly get involved with? Or 
going about. Yeah, thanks. So on December 12th, uh, we're doing a webinar on the Russian asylum seekers. So folks coming to this country, fleeing conscription in Russia, fleeing, uh, having to be forced to partake in I, I, it's so tempting to say this illegal war, but all war is illegal, you know, so, so fleeing conscription to take part in the war, participate in, in war crimes. Uh, and, you know, when the war began in 2022, President Biden made a commitment, anybody wanting to get out and not wanting to fight in this war would have asylum here, would be safe here. And then they started deporting people. And that was because of, I think, a little bit of bias um, on, on the part of the U.S., judges maybe with some bias against Russian nationals, um, an American policy that doesn't want to question the right of a sovereign nation to draft its people, because we don't want to question the legitimacy of a draft in case we ever need it. We continue to keep the apparatus of a draft alive in this country, even though we don't have an active draft, and a draft is incredibly unpopular. Um, but they've been uh, applying, our asylum offices have been applying the asylum law incorrectly. So we want to protect these folks from deportation, protect their rights of conscience, their rights to flee. Um, you know, these unconscionable acts of conscription and participation in war. And so we want to help out attorneys and communities to understand what the right of conscientious objection with respect to asylum law means in, in the United States and how we can uh, give support to these folks so that they're not going to be forced to to take another human life against their will. So that's on December 12th. Um, you can go to our website, centeronconscience.org. Follow us on social media. Typically, we're at Center on Conscience. And I think the most important thing we can do is raise awareness of the right to conscientious objection for anyone particularly for members of the U.S. military, because that's where I think it's most critical, but also in our asylum law and in our immigration law. So folks that are coming over and, and, and becoming citizens, naturalizing in the U.S., typically would take a standard oath, which includes the pledge to bear arms for the country. And for many people, that's a violation of their most deeply held beliefs. Well, yes. you don't have to take that oath. You have the right to take an oath designed for conscientious objectors, and we can help you with that as well. So one of the things we like you know, for people to know even though we don't have an active draft, there's still ways that conscientious objection is alive and being tested in U.S. law. And it's important to keep that protected, to keep it alive, to keep it healthy, and to keep it protected, because that's important for all of us. So those are the ways that, um, you know, we, that we're working to support rights of conscience and how folks out there can, number one, raising awareness. So, so follow us on social media, share, share our posts, you know, like our posts, all that good stuff, just so people know that they have somewhere to turn if they, if they need that kind of support. Thank you for standing up for the cause that is trying to save our lives and save our world. To both of you and to all of us at World Beyond War for showing the power of people working together. We, we are all working on teams, and that's, that's just a wonderful thing to do, even when it's frustrating. Um, well, thank you, Mark and Maria. Thank you very much. Thank you both so much. It's such a privilege to be, uh, to be with you guys today and also to be part of the advisory board of World Beyond War. I, just, I love the work so much, and one of the things that gives me so much pride is that the mission is completely incorruptible and inflexible. No war out of any kind. So I appreciate that so much.
Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.